Listeners, there's honestly nothing I love more than a good writing retreat, especially one that comes with solid coaching and the chance to meet other writers who are working on similar projects. This fall, three Author Accelerator certified book coaches are offering what sounds like a dream retreat if what you're working on is telling your own story. It's called Mainly Memoir, and it's a retreat for women writers in historic Biddeford, Maine. Mainly Memoir will provide three days in the gorgeous Maine woods in September, with one-on-one coaching both before, during, and after the retreat. It is the perfect opportunity to give yourself the gift of time and focus so that you can make real progress on your memoir this year. Mainly Memoir will be held from September 21st through 24th, 2023. A scholarship is available for a memoirist from a community that has been traditionally underrepresented in publishing. Learn more at MainlyMemoir.com, and as you've probably guessed, Mainly is spelled M-A-I-N-E-L-Y. So that's Maine the State, MainlyMemoir.com. Is it recording? Now it's recording. Yay! Go ahead. This is the part where I stare blankly at the microphone and try to remember what I'm supposed to be doing. All right, let's start over. Awkward pause. I'm going to wrestle some papers. Okay. Now one, two, three. Hey, I'm Jess Leahy, and this is the Hashtag Am Writing Podcast. The podcast about writing all the things, short things, long things, nonfiction things, fiction things, poetry things, screenwriting things, all the things. But more than anything else, this is the podcast about the nuts and bolts of sitting down and getting the work done. If you want answers to your really nuts and bolts questions about writing, like when things go really wrong, how do you get out of it? Um, What happens if you need an agent? What happens if your editor screws you? That's what we do here. We talk about the nuts and bolts of getting the work done. As I mentioned, I'm Jess Leahy, and I am the author of the New York Times bestselling The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation. You can find my writing at The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, a bunch of other places. Um, and our, my two co-hosts that are normally here with me, um, the wonderful Serena Bowen, many times bestselling, it's like 27 times whatever, bestselling author of romance novels, and K.J. Delantonia, my former editor at the New York Times and uh, writer of such wonderful books as The Chicken Sisters and In Her Boots and the forthcoming Playing the Witch Card. They're not with me today, but that's okay because I'm talking about a specific topic that is very specific and very personal to me. What are the effects of intoxicating substances on writers' work lives. (laughs) Let's get into it. We have so much to talk about today. I'm not just talking about alcohol, that that was my drug of choice. I uh, got sober in June of 2013, June 7th of 2013 to be exact. In fact, that's what most of my content has been about for the past couple of years since writing The Addiction Inoculation. But I wanted to talk specifically about writing and intoxicating substances, because this is a discussion that's been going on for a long time. There's a lot of mythology surrounding this topic. I mean, just look at the Hemingway, you know, Fitzgerald sort of situation. Um, It gets talked about a lot, but I want to add a little bit of research into the mix. Okay, backing up. 
on regarding alcohol, there's this mythology around, especially around men and alcohol um, that, you know, and Stephen King uh, elucidates this just brilliantly in On Writing. He talks about the fact that, you know, men are men and they're not allowed to have these soft emotions. And so the only way they can deal with the angst of being alive on this in this world and trying to get by is by getting drunk so that the that stuff can come out. And Okay, whatever. Um, but where women are concerned, uh, women and alcohol, it's a slightly different relationship. I mean, a lot of women tend to drink because of anxiety. In fact, women who drink because of anxiety are more likely to have um an unhealthy relationship with alcohol than not. Uh, and I talk about that in the, uh, the addiction inoculation. But the idea being that if you can take something like alcohol, like cannabis, um, even we're going to talk a little bit about Adderall today or any of those um, stimulant drugs that are used for um, attention deficit disorders, um, that somehow you can tap into creativity that you normally wouldn't be able to tap into. I mean, this is a really old... Um, idea. The Greeks used to believe in, so this is a really cool um, etymology lesson. So to be inspired means to breathe in, because in means in, this is uh, Latin, and sperare means to breathe. So the idea is, is that there used to be these, uh, the idea of this person, this truth teller, this um, soothsayer who could sit above one of the vents of the um, that goes down to the center of the earth and the gases would come up and if this person breathed in these gases they could tap into sort of the um, the innermost creativity or the creativity of the world that somehow they could it is sort of a, a different story, but that they could pull the, the muses in to somehow work for them. The idea being that they're actually channeling the wisdom of the earth itself. I mean, all kinds of problems with that being, you know, toxic fumes and all that sort of stuff. But I love the idea that to be inspired implies that you're somehow breathing in something that is allowing you to tap into that creativity. Not a new idea, right? So we have the alcohol thing. Let's start with alcohol. So alcohol does alleviate um, anxiety in the short term. The unfortunate fact for a lot of us is that it um, actually exacerbates anxiety over the long term. But for me, it was a really great escape from the anxiety I felt was really holding me back from being able to be the most creative, to say the thing. I was really afraid of saying things because of how people would react to me, um, what people would say. Would people still like like me, um, my idea of hell at that time was the idea of, you know, publishing an op-ed piece where lots and lots of people got angry. Of course, that's the purpose of op-ed pieces these days is to be clickbaity and get people debating. And in fact, just uh, the other day, some I, I had uh, been interviewed for something and a lot of people started arguing about it. And I jokingly texted to KJ and um, Serena and that that's my cue to get off social media for my mental health. And yet editors love that when there's argument because it, it creates more sharing. The, we know that viral articles tend to come from a place of anger and outrage. So anything that inspires anger and outrage is good for uh, clicks. Not so great for mental health of the authors sometimes, I guess, unless you're really into that thing. So alcohol allowed me to, as I asked, uh, I asked Stephen Strogatz one time when I saw, before we became friends, when I first saw him speak at Dartmouth College, um, how do you not write 
to the comments, meaning how do you not write so defensively that you're stifling your creativity? And his answer was brilliant. It was that he has his wife read all of the comments and she gives him a percentage pro-con. So like, for example, if 90% of the comments are pro and 10% of them are con in a mathematician's mind, or even in my mind, that's like, cool, 90%. And yet, if you were to read those actual comments, that 10% would be so outsized in your brain that it, for me anyway, would completely um, hobble my ability to not write to the comments, to not write defensively so that those 10% would like me. Um, so some people take the Stephen Strogatz route of asking someone else to sort of go through the comments. I've asked Serena and KJ to do that for me before, and they've been brilliant. My husband even does that for me. One time when I got really blasted, um, my kids did that for me. They sort of helped me. One went through my Instagram, one went through my Twitter, one went through my Facebook, and we just they just blocked everybody that was being outrageously mean. It was great. Some writers, myself included, um, have used alcohol as a way to get over the hump of criticism, to get over the hump of imposter syndrome, to get over the hump of what will people think. Now, for some people, that, um, that alcohol also, they feel, tends to make them more creative. Now, I have research to back up some of these ideas or to at least discuss some of these ideas. There has been some research to show that alcohol can shut down working memory. So just to be clear, um, working memory is the part of your memory that allows you to sort of access it. Um, it's not like short-term memory where you're just shoving it in to sort of memorize that information for a short period of time. And it's not long-term memory, but it's your ability to sort of draw on lots of ideas at once. Um, that's a very overly simplistic, I apologize. Apologize to all of the neuroscientists out there listening. That's not a complete uh, discussion. But what the what alcohol does is it allows you, at least in some of the studies that have looked on the, at this, it allows you to um, not have other working memory um, ideas get in the way of sort of focusing on one thing, or it allows other ideas to come in in a way that um, you can feel more inspired. So it's plus minus on whether alcohol actually helps. There is a study out there floating around right now that says that alcohol um, may help some people be more creative. Okay, so in fact, there's an article in Psychology Today called Alcohol Benefits the Creative Process by uh, Sean Bellick, PhD. Um, being moderately intoxicated gets people to think, quote, outside the box. Uh, there's also research on the other side of that saying that it doesn't. But let's talk a little bit about, let's say there is a slight benefit in terms of creativity, just like there may be a slight ver um, benefit that people have put up in the media about, like, for example, resveratrol. Yay, it's an antioxidant. It's really great for you. Turns out you'd have to drink, like, bathtubs full of wine to get benefits from that resveratrol. So let's talk about this ability to think outside the box. For me, anyway, as someone who has alcohol use disorder, the cons of alcohol greatly outweigh the ability to think outside the box. I've had to find other ways to help me think outside the box, and I'll talk about some of those. Um, and we have talked about some of those in the podcast in the past. But for me, um, my life falling apart, ending up divorced, having my children not speak to me um, at the time that I got sober, I was working as a teacher, I would have gotten fired, all of that. That stuff is obviously outweighs that slight ability to possibly think a little bit more outside the box. So for me in particular, 
it wasn't a great benefit. For let's say you do not have alcohol use disorder and you're trying to get yourself to think more outside the box, I would ask you to weigh the cost-benefit analysis there. If thinking outside the box is something that you're really going for in order to um, really unlock your creative potential, there are other ways to do that. There's something in, um, we've talked about this in the past, for me gardening fits that bill. It allows me to get into this default mode in my brain, this creative mode in my brain where it's sort of like it unlocks all it allows me to make connections that I normally wouldn't be able to make and if I have a problem with the manuscript if my editor is having issues with something and I need to work those things out I've talked about this specifically weeding is sort of the thing I don't know what it is it's a great metaphor though there's this one particular weed that I love to I hate to say this because it is my avowed enemy it's called bishop's weed or gout weed and it has these very tangly roots. But something about untangling those roots really gently, because if you break them, each little piece will create new root and can grow a whole new plant. So it's really important that you get them out in one big piece, which is a lovely metaphor for what I'm trying to do for the writing, right? I'm trying to untangle what might be wrong and yet get the ideas out intact. Uh, again, Stephen King talks about it, um, talks about writing as a kind of archaeology that these stories lie underneath the earth and it's the job of the writer as an archaeologist to unearth them intact. And anyway, this is the, um, the weeding thing just works for me. That allows me to think outside the box to uh, think in ways that normally I might be too restricted in my thinking or I'm just too deep inside the work and I can't step back and sort of look at the big picture. Weeding helps me <laughs> think, look at the big picture. I don't know why. Um, and again, one of the benefits for me anyway of getting sober is that I've had to find other ways to um, to get around my anxiety, my inability to sometimes to think outside the box, to quiet the voices in my head of you're not good enough, you aren't uh, worthy, you don't really know how to do this job of writing, all that sort of stuff. I've had to actually manage the the voices and the those feelings rather than just numbing them because they're going to be there when I um, am not numb anymore. So... Again, and also there's some wonderful books out there. Um, the Andrew Huberman um, podcast, the Huberman Lab podcast, um, has a great episode on alcohol and the brain and body. Huberman's getting himself into a little bit of hot water these days um, because he's pushing a lot of supplements. But there are some episode uh, episodes of his that I find really great. One is alcohol in the brain and body, cannabis in the brain and body, nicotine in the brain and body, and uh, caffeine in the brain and body. Those four really, really great. Um, no, I will not be giving up caffeine. Don't even get that in your head. Anyway, the alcohol in the brain and body can help you think about whether or not alcohol is something that you actually want in your brain and body. And if you do, that's, and you don't have a problem with alcohol, then go for it. So there might be, moving on from alcohol, I don't want to beat this dead horse. There might be a slight creative benefit to moderate amounts of alcohol. Um, for me, again, not worth it, but you do you. Now, let's get into some of the other ones. So cannabis. Cannabis is the one that for a very long time, and actually this is the one that adheres most beautifully to that inspiration metaphor, right? You breathe something in, in the, in the mythology. It actually is a steamy, smoky thing coming up from the inside of the earth, a lot like cannabis uh, if you're smoking it. 
Um, I'm not going to get into all of the dangers of smoking, vaping, whatever. Listen to the Huberman podcast, though, about cannabis. It's really interesting. I learned a ton. Really interesting stuff about our receptors for endogenous cannabinoids and, um, and the fact that we don't really know what they do, but we do know that THC that you bring in from outside, um, meaning if you smoke cannabis or eat cannabis or whatever, that it actually gloms those receptors up. And we don't even know what the endogenous meaning coming from inside of our own body. We don't even know what it's really doing. And anyway, anyway, really interesting episode. However, a research report came out just recently, which is what uh, inspired me, so to speak, to make this episode. Um, A research report from the Journal of Applied Psychology. Uh, The title is, Cannabis Use Does Not Increase Actual Creativity, But Biases Evaluations of Creativity. In other words, smoking weed, eating weed, whatever can make you believe that you are more creative. I mean, there's all sorts of jokes about this, right? That, you know, you get high or you get wasted and you write down all of these ideas and then you come back to them and they feel like the most brilliant ideas on the planet. Um, They feel like, you know, if maybe even with psychedelics that you have unlocked some secret to the universe and if you're capable of writing it down that it this is the answer and then you come back and you find out that what you've written down is, you know, like, you know, eat more gummy bears because, you know, that would be my answer to the universe. Anyway, um, that it may not be as brilliant as it was perceived in your um, altered brain state. Uh, But this research report is fascinating. It shows that it's not so much that it, um, when you look at the creative process, when you look at the creative output, that it doesn't, that using cannabis doesn't actually increase your creative, your creativity, but it increases your assessment of your own uh, creative uh, output and which I think is fascinating. It also feeds into another study that I, a, a bunch of studies I was reading back when I was writing the addiction inoculation, which is, you know, it's become a thing to take uh, drugs like Adderall, Concerta, whatever the current, um, I haven't been up lately on the most recent um, ADD and ADHD drugs uh, and But there are a bunch out there. They're all stimulants because in people with attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity disorder, there is a uh, paradoxical response. And instead of making you more hyper, it somehow quiets the brain. It's, uh, it's, It's a crazy mystery. Anyway, it's not really a mystery. It's just... Um, complicated, as so many things are. Uh, but Adderall doesn't actually, I think it would be, a, this is a fascinating thing to tell your students, your kids, Adderall doesn't actually improve your ability to learn or your absorption, so to speak, of material, but boy, it makes you feel like it does. I mean, stimulants make you feel speedy and brilliant and amazing. Uh, Back to Stephen King, he talks about his addiction to cocaine um, was something he wrote about sort of under the guise of uh, the Tommyknockers. He talks about the fact that before his... um, before his alert, aware, uh, upper brain functions realized that he had a problem with substances, his lower brain functions certainly knew, and he was writing about them. Annie Wilkes as opiates in Misery, uh, the Tommyknockers as uh, cocaine in the Tommyknockers, and anyway, uh, it doesn't actually make you more creative, doesn't actually make you better a better learner, 
So what do we do with this? I mean, there is the idea that, okay, well, as long as we're feeling more expansive and creative, maybe it does, you know, regardless of what the studies say about creative output, maybe just the fact that we're feeling more inspired and more creative can make us more inspired and more creative. That idea of like the fake it till you make it kind of thing. Maybe if I'm feeling braver, then I'm more willing to say the things that I wouldn't say Um, if I wasn't under the influence, which is where we need to talk about my experience. And here we're moving from some research into anecdote. Um, Anytime you're talking about the experience of one person or a few people, a non-statistically significant um, or representative sample, um, then not ignore the statistically significant thing. What I meant to say was representative sample. Then we're talking about anecdote. So that's my experience here. Anecdote is that... um, If I am brave enough, if my um, inhibitions have been shed enough to say some things that I normally wouldn't say, it would be a really good idea if I'm writing drunk or writing buzzed to edit sober. Now, write drunk, edit sober, not something I made up. Clearly, this is something that's been out there for a really long time. Um, And it worked for me until, as they say in recovery, it didn't work for me. When I first started writing professionally with editors and deadlines, um, I was also still teaching. And it was, uh, I was teaching a really full schedule of middle school classes and writing full-time for the, pretty much full-time for the Atlantic, which meant I was working a full day getting up insanely early, working and probably hungover. Um, Yeah, I was hungover. Um, Working really, really long day and then coming home and having to not only grade papers, but somehow write articles for The Atlantic. And I had learned a long time before that that I could not grade papers even buzzed. And if I if I dared to do that, I always had to loop. I had to come back to the papers that I had already graded um, when I was sober. So I, I had learned early on not to do that. I just couldn't do it. It was one of those rules that, thank goodness, I hadn't really crossed yet. Um, but writing drunk, I was still doing because until an editor sees it, it I can write whatever I want, right? Um, In fact, you know, there's that Anne Lamott saying, or the Anne Lamott thing that she writes about in Bird by Bird, where she was scared to death of writing rough drafts and then going out and getting hit by a bus because then people would see her rough drafts and say, oh my gosh, what have we been thinking? She's awful. Well, if you had looked at my rough drafts during that period before I got sober, right at the end, my writing was awful. So we talk a lot on this podcast about ways to save your not necessarily time, but effort. And Serena's talked a lot about the fact that outlining and pre-writing really helps her get a grip on what she's writing the next day so that she doesn't waste her time. Or um, as in a couple podcasts ago, we talked about that in outlining that, you know, why write that scene? I'm not going to, I think KJ said, I'm not going to write that scene about the sun setting until I know that the sun is actually going to set. Because it's, she, I talked about this, I think with her first draft of Chicken Sisters, that she wasted a whole lot of time because she wrote randomly and in odd directions and a lot of stuff that she didn't need. That's essentially what was happening when I was writing drunk. I was writing a lot of work that I didn't need to write, or I was writing crap, frankly. A lot of the editing that I was doing during that period was to get rid of the drunken nonsense that I had written that made no sense, that took me off the path, that was a red herring. Um, It just... It was a big waste of time for me. 
I still am not sure how I managed to get the work out. I'm so grateful for my editors. I am so grateful for that um, that part of my brain that says, no, don't you dare email when you're drunk or don't you dare hand anything in when you're drunk or tweet when you're drunk or whatever. At least I had that little voice in my head that kept me from doing that. I never, ever emailed an editor when I had been drinking because, you know, who knows what I was going to send. So I don't, I never handed any work in until Sober Me had been over it with a fine tooth comb. But just imagine the amount of time I could have saved. I mean, you know, part of going through recovery is realizing just how much time I wasted. Um, and that's hard to reconcile. But again, I am where I am now because of that time. I am the human being that I am now because of that. I would never, ever change anything about my past. I don't regret it. I don't, it, it has, it led to the addiction inoculation. It led to the relationship I now have with myself and my sobriety and my spouse and my parents and all that stuff. I'm, you know, whatever. But the whole point of this discussion has been to think more carefully about if we need to go to some intoxicating substance to quote unquote unlock our creativity, to get inspired, um, to maybe think about what it is that's scaring us so that we can't do that just ourselves, just all by ourselves without an intoxicant in the system in order to make it happen. And like I said, you do you. If you do not have substance use disorder and you believe that smoking some weed allows you to unlock the creative potential of your brain and you're not emailing your editors while you're doing that, then you do you, dude. I mean, I I really, really wish I could be the kind of person who could use intoxicating substances and not lose control of my ability to moderate them, but I can't. But if you can, and it's not hurting anyone, and you're not emailing any of that work directly to your editors, can you even imagine what Fitzgerald's and Hemingway's editors went through? I have no idea if he ever sent his work, their work off um, until they had edited sober, but I I can't even imagine. That would be really, really tough to be the editor for someone who is um, using. Okay, normally at this point in the podcast, we would pivot, and I'm going to pivot in just a second, to what we've been reading. But today, the hashtag am reading segment is going to be about books that I love that are about writing and intoxicants, or writing and sobriety, or writing and alcohol. So let's take a quick break, and then we're going to talk about some interesting books about this topic. Kids, this is KJ, and I feel, stop me if I'm wrong here, that perhaps you or someone you love would enjoy reading one of my books. You Can't Go Wrong with the Chicken Sisters, a tale of rival fried chicken restaurants and rival sisters in a small town trying to solve all their problems via reality TV. Always a good idea. And many readers like In Her Boots even better. That one's a fun story about figuring out who you are as opposed to who you think everyone wants you to be, but also delivers a literary hoax, a farm life, and an ex who can't seem to find the exit. Or give future you or anyone you love a lovely gift by pre-ordering Playing the Witch Card for next Halloween's witchy reading fun. Bookstores, people! Head to one now. Hey, we're back. So in this hashtag am reading segment of the hashtag am writing 
um, podcast. If I've made any of you uncomfortable with my discussion of why um, people take intoxicants in order to feel better about themselves, to quiet the voices in their head, to quiet their inner editor, to quiet the criticism, to unlock the muses from their little cages that they live in most of the time. Um, I, I have to say, I think that's a good thing. There's something really magical about um, when I go, one of my speaking gigs is at Canyon Ranch. Don't hate me. It's that spa that's in Lenox and in Tucson. And one of the things I get to do there sometimes is lead the recovery meetings. And at those recovery meetings, sometimes people show up who are just curious about what goes on in recovery meetings. And because Canyon Ranch doesn't serve alcohol, uh, they are there sometimes just to say things. And this I've heard this so many times now. You know, I'm here just because I didn't think it would bother me that Canyon Ranch doesn't serve alcohol. And yet, boy, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I want to understand why it bothers me so much that Canyon Ranch doesn't serve alcohol. And I love those conversations because it's not necessarily, you know, like my life is ending. I'm about to torpedo my entire existence because I have a drinking problem. It's, you know, I'm just thinking about that. I'm thinking about the role that um, alcohol or whatever your intoxicant is plays in my life. So um, I think that's a good thing. So if I've made you uncomfortable with this conversation today, you know, okay, do some more thinking. I certainly had to anyway. Okay, so let's talk about books that I love that have to do with writing and um, and alcohol. There is a book, I think I've talked about it before, by Olivia Lang, L-A-I-N-G, called The Trip to Echo Spring on Writers and Drinking. And I read this when I was writing The Addiction Inoculation. And it's um, reading from the back, Olivia Lang's widely, widely acclaimed account of how writers in the grip of alcoholism created some of the greatest works of American literature. Um, it's also, it's just musings on people like Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Tennessee Williams, John Berryman, John Cheever, and Raymond Carver and their relationship with alcohol. And I highly recommend it. It's really, really interesting. And speaking of John Cheever, Susan Cheever is a wonderful, wonderful writer, and she's the daughter of John Cheever. Um, John Cheever has a, uh, there's a little nostalgia for John Cheever in my mind because um, one of my parents loved, John, my alcoholic parent actually loved John Cheever's stories, and I have this very vivid picture of there's a an anthology of John Cheever's work with a giant C on the cover, and I think it's red or orange. And I remember seeing that book around all the time. So it was fairly interesting for me to find out as an adult that John Cheever was a raging alcoholic. Um, and his daughter, Susan Cheever, also ended up with a substance use disorder. And she's written a couple of books about this. She wrote a book called Home Before Dark, which is a biographical memoir of John Cheever by his daughter, Susan Cheever. I find that one fascinating. And then another book called Note Found in a Bottle, My Life as a Drinker. I really like that one too. She also has a history book about, um, um, and I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, and I'm looking for it in my bookshelf across the room, but it's about our history with um, alcohol as a country. It's like drinking in America or anyway, look up Susan Cheever and you'll find it. It's, oh wait, I see it. It's um, Drinking in America by Susan Cheever. Really interesting. She has that perspective both as the daughter of an alcoholic and as an alcoholic herself and as a writer and as the daughter of a of an 
incredibly brilliant writer, um, and the relationship of alcohol to creativity and alcohol to productivity and alcohol to writing. And then, finally, one of my favorite books about substance use disorder and recovery Leslie Jameson, who wrote The Empathy Exams, has a beautiful, beautiful book called The Recovering, Intoxication and Its Aftermath. My copy is filled with post-its and, um, and little flags. I adore this book. I've bought a couple copies um, and given them to people. I put a copy in the independent reading shelf at the, at the rehab where I work. And anyway, it's fantastic. So... I happen to know that there are a couple of people in the hashtag AmWriting Facebook group who have gotten sober, and I just want to shout them out, not by name, of course, but just shout out to the Am, hashtag AmWriting listeners who have gotten sober. I'm so proud of you. One of them in particular has been public about it. It's far be it from me to shout her out here, um, but I'm just so proud of all of you for um, taking the leap to thinking about your relationship with intoxicants and what it does or does not do for you and what it, it gives and, oh, good Lord, what it takes away. So anyway, for those of you um, who have enjoyed this discussion and want to think more about this topic, I recommend all of those books that are in the show notes. I'll definitely be putting them in the show notes. And I'll be putting links, by the way, to the research articles that I have mentioned about cannabis, about Adderall, and about booze. Um, I also want to mention there's a really wonderful book, finally, this is the very last one, called Out of the Wreck I Rise, and it is a compilation of quotes by Neil Steinberg and Sarah Bader, and it's a literary companion to recovery. Again, another book that is stuffed with post-it notes. Um, because it's just quotes from readers about either using, about being intoxicated, about recovery, about creativity, just quotes upon quotes upon quotes, and I love me a good quote. Anyway, thanks so much for following along on this uh, investigation into intoxicants and creativity. Uh, I hope I have, well, I guess I, I hope I've harshed some of your buzz. Um, but for those of you who don't have substance use disorder, I'm sorry that I harshed your buzz. Go ahead, buzz away. Uh, but we will see you next week. And uh, if you have any questions that you would like answered, if you want to be on a possible future episode in a coaching episode, go to the hashtag AmWriting Facebook group and ask some questions there. We have a really uh, beautiful group of a couple of thousand writers there. We do not allow any meanness in there. So there's no mean people, just people who are supporting each other as writers and in the process of writing. Um, because this episode is fairly personal, um, if you go to my uh, website, jessicalahey.com and go to my contact page, that just goes to my email. So if you, and it's anonymous, it's, you know, I'm not going to, I don't have an assistant who's going to read it and shout about the fact that someone emailed me about the fact that they think they might be an alcoholic or whatever. If you want to talk about any of this stuff, get in touch. I'm happy to talk to you about it. It is an amazing privilege to receive lots and lots of emails about people who are scared for someone else or who are worried about themselves or who thinking about getting sober, whatever that is. Um, and so I'm happy to be uh, a resource for all of you. Anyway, until next week, keep your butt in the chair and your head in the game. The 
Hashtag AmWriting podcast is produced by Andrew Perella. Our intro music, aptly titled Unemployed Monday, was written and played by Max Cohen. Andrew and Max were paid for their time and their creative output because everyone deserves to be paid for their work.